0: I want to welcome you uh, folks that are here in the room, but I also want to take a moment to welcome our Facebook Live audience. Uh, We are blessed uh, this afternoon to uh, have uh, folks here, students, pastors, campus guests, faculty members, but we've got some of all of those groups also that are participating with us this afternoon uh, by Facebook, and uh, we want to welcome you and say thank you for carving out the time uh, to be a part of this event uh just uh, something for all of you by way of logistics we're going to give you an opportunity whether you're here in the room or with us by facebook to ask questions Uh, Let me just tell you that all of the questions need to be submitted uh, via Facebook, Uh, the Facebook live event in the Southeastern site. So uh, if you're in the room, uh, you need to know that, but you also need to turn down the volume on your your phone or we're going to have some crazy stuff going on, okay? So know that Uh, if you want to submit a question when we come to those times or as we go along and you're welcome to go ahead and and submit those, uh, just know that that's the way Uh, that we'll be doing it. So joy for me to, to welcome you to this event that really is sponsored by the Southeastern Center for Pastoral Leadership and Preaching. Uh, that center exists uh, just as a, a statement of the importance that we put not only on the preaching event, but pastoral ministry in general. Uh, there's a ton of resources that are available just as this resource will be available on uh, the Pastoral Center website that you can get uh, to through the uh, the Southeastern site. Uh, we've done uh, conversations like this about stuff like baptism and the Lord's Supper, Uh, about uh, uh, counseling, uh, and all kinds of things that have to do with pastoral ministry. So we want you to know about that, know that that resource is there. Uh, Part of what we do uh, through the Pastoral Center is uh, the EQUIP program. Uh, I have the privilege of overseeing the EQUIP network, and and that's a a partnership that we have with churches and parachurch organizations to teach theological education, a portion of it, in those organizations, through those ministries, uh, via internships and uh, mentorships. Some of you are, have been a part of that. Some of you on our Facebook Live audience are partners with us in that, and we do, we're just thankful uh, for God's grace to be able to to do that kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, we want to jump right in uh, to uh, our, our discussion this afternoon. What we're going to be doing Uh, is we're going to be talking about preaching in different contexts. And that's a big, broad subject. There's no way we're going to be able to exhaust it all. But uh, there are so many variables out there with regard to church location, makeup, audiences, uh, uh, philosophies of individual pastors, and different kinds of things like that. And we want to try to touch on some of those things, just representative examples uh, of those uh, bigger categories, and hopefully uh, scratch some places that some of you are itching in your pastoral ministry uh, right now, especially as it relates to preaching. Uh, so big picture categories, uh, we're going to talk about uh, some things related to the stage of the church, and what I mean by that is that a new church, a church plant, established church, church being revitalized, you know, different kinds of things uh, like that. And then we'll talk about uh, the nature of the audience a little bit and touch on some with regard to multi-ethnic audiences, uh, as well as believing, unbelieving listeners uh, in, in the audiences and some things uh, of that nature. And then I mentioned the philosophy of the pastor. Uh, We want to uh, think a little bit about uh, just some different things related to uh, preferences that pastors have, strategies that they have, uh, teaching teams, uh, those types of things, relationship of of preaching to other ministries in the church. And so hopefully within this next hour, we'll be able to to, uh, explore some of these things with our panelists and also give you an opportunity to submit some questions questions related to them uh, as well. Uh, let me go ahead and introduce to you the guys that are going to be uh, speaking into our lives and our ministries uh, this afternoon, excited uh, to uh, uh, bring a combination together of uh, our Adams Lecture special guest uh, speaker who is uh, with us this week, Dr. Art Azzertia, uh right over here who is the Senior Minister of the Word and Worship at Trinity Church in Portland uh, and so he's preaching in a, a context that's very different uh, from uh, uh, where most of us are preaching in, in places like this in, in the deep South. Uh, Dr. Azurdia ours also serves as a professor of pastoral theology and director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Western Seminary, which is also located in uh, in Portland. I want you to take a moment to welcome him uh, this afternoon. So. Yeah. And Doctor Zerdi is going to be. Um, um, you guys okay with us just going with first names this afternoon? That'd be all right with you? No. Uh, with oh, you want to go with no, Doctor? I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> let Let me uh, Let me introduce to you the arrogant one uh, on the panel this afternoon. Is <laughs> a now uh, Doctor Tony Morita. I, I couldn't call anybody Doctor who wears his shirt out of his pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, what 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 is this? What is Wow. <laughs> it, it's a hostile panel this afternoon. So let me just. Uh, <clears throat> <so. laughs> Dr. Tony Morita serves as professor of preaching here at Southeastern, a dear brother and colleague, partner in the gospel. Also serves as pastor to uh, many of you that are here, as well as on our Facebook campus. He's the pastor of Imago Day Church, senior pastor there. Uh, Tony, we're glad that you're here. Another member of our preaching faculty, Dr. Dwayne Milioni, uh, here to my left, uh, serves on our faculty teaching preaching. He also uh, helps direct our PhD program in preaching in that area specifically, and gives us great leadership. Also, the pastor uh, to many of you at Open Door uh, Baptist Church in uh, in Raleigh, and so guys, thank you so much for taking the time. I know all of you are busy, and uh, we we're honored to have you. Uh, I mentioned I'm Jim Shaddix. So I also get to serve with these brothers that are here on our faculty in the the preaching area, and so we're we're looking forward to just kicking around some some ideas, guys. We talk about preaching in different contexts. One of the things I'm most excited about is the the breadth of experience that, uh, you guys bring uh, to the table. Uh, what I'd like to just put, to put this discussion in context is for you to go around and, and Tony, we'll start over there with you and just describe the churches that you've pastored, not in depth, but just kind of put them in context with regard to some of these issues: rural, rural urban, you know, new church, young church, uh, ones that you have preached in regularly, either as a senior pastor or you've been one of the the teaching pastors in that church. And, and let's kind of frame this thing up. So, Tony, let's start yeah, with you.
1: So, uh, my first pastor was I was 27 years old in New Orleans. I uh, was pastor there for eight months until Hurricane Katrina came. And um, uh, affected our our ministry there. I uh, was able to stay there post Katrina for a period of time, but that was an uh, an urban church. Um, uh, it was a, it was an older church, so very traditional. Um, I, I felt that the pastor I followed was much different. We may get into that later uh, on uh, revitalization. Uh, second church was in Mississippi in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. That was a mega church uh, over three thousand people. Um, a large Southern Baptist church. Uh, I called it kind of Baby Bellevue. Uh, if people know that name in Memphis, it was very similar to Bellevue, just kind of a smaller version of that. Uh, and then five and a half years ago, we moved here to Raleigh to uh, plant Amago Day, uh, which is a new church uh, with a lot of millennials and uh, those on the edge of millennial, like Walter over here, who I think is barely millennial. Um, I don't know yet what, where, what he is, but uh, we're slowly getting older people, uh, and that church has grown to about a 1,000 people now, and um, we just got a new building, and so we're in a real transitional uh, season as a church. Uh, to have a permanent location, we, we had met in two or three locations previously, and so uh, that context was radically different than the other two contexts.
2: Art? I tell my students all the time, if you're going to go into ministry, you've got to drink the Kool-Aid. just depends on which Kool-Aid you drink, huh? So you can go into an established church, and you've got people and buildings and money and baggage. Uh, you can church plant, no people, no buildings, no money. You make your own messes i 've always planted churches i 've never gone into an established church, so when we get to revitalization, I have nothing to contribute um, so i 'll just get some nachos and drink and but i, I, I we, we, we planted a church in California that I pastored for nineteen years. We planted another church out of that congregation. Um, it was mostly. Um, urban professionals who lived in suburbs, long commutes into places like San Francisco, Sacramento, large homeschooling population that brought with it its own significant challenges. Um, Twelve years ago, I joined the faculty at the seminary, and after about two years, I thought, any boob can be a seminary professor. I was so bored. and. Uh, Chomping to get back. It's
0: time for us to take a break. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, uh.
2: Chomping to get back into pastoral ministry again, and one of my colleagues said, "Art, yeah, let's plant a church. You don't plant a church when you're 51. Uh, It's a young man's game." But we planted a church, and the Lord has been gracious. It's filled with a bunch of hipsters. About 20 to. They look a lot like this fellow here. Only more piercings and more tattoos, and that's just those are our elders. So, uh, <clears throat> so uh, the vast majority of our church is between 20 and 30. Um, about 50% of our congregation is Russian Romanian, um, and most of these people have been converted really in about the last six years or so. We planted out of our church three years ago, and I mean, we're about 12 months away from doing it again. So,
3: Dwayne. So I grew up uh, in the north, in Michigan, raised in a fundamentalist church, and so that was my entire background, uh, until um Lord sort of drastically changed my life and uh, came down to Virginia to uh, study, uh, joined uh, Southern Baptist Church there, and that had stuck since then, so got an experience on staff and doing some preaching at a traditional Southern Baptist Church, and then... I was doing my Ph.D. work here at Southeastern in the late 90s and started teaching in Open Door. Um, called me. was was uh, primarily a young church um, that uh, was meeting in a school, and um, by God's grace, I've been able to stay there. Uh, this Sunday will be my 18th anniversary at, uh, at Open Door. When I'm not preaching at my church, I'm usually speaking at one of our church plants. We've been pretty actively uh, planting churches for about 12 years and all over the U.S., and so I've had some great opportunities to learn those contexts, you know, planting.
0: Say, say a word before we, we move on. Say a word just about the church planting network that you guys are doing. Oh, sure.
3: Um, uh, we formed um, the Pillar Church Planting Network. It's a Southern Baptist-only network of church planting churches. And their church plants, and uh, we I think we have a little over sixty now in the network. And just talking to Art, just um, trying to uh, plant healthy churches in the West is is a a huge challenge. But we're seeing some good work being done there.
0: I'll add to uh, just my journey. Uh, I've had the privilege of pastoring, serving as a senior pastor of four churches. The first one was a church plant. Um, That was the first church I pastored when I was a master's student, and Uh, The Dallas-Fort Worth area ended up pastoring that church for eight and a half years, that was kind of, you know, mid-80s. It was really before, you know, we were talking as much about church planning as where well. I didn't set out to plan a church. I kind of stumbled into it, and I was flying by the seat of my pants, And but uh, God bless that work, and it was a wonderful experience. Went from there uh, to a church that was established, I think, in 1876 in rural uh, Mississippi, about 60 miles from New Orleans, where I started attending school. So I went from a context where I never heard any say, well, we've never done it that way before because we had never done it anyway before. And so we were new and and I never heard anybody say, um, uh, well, Sonny, we were here before you got here and we'll be here after you leave. Uh, I went from a place like that to a place where they were all there before I got there. Uh, the the church, and I think some of them that, that helped start that church in 1876 were still there. Uh, and they ceased not to remind me that they would be there uh, after I, I was left, and, and after I had left, and certainly they were. But a great experience, uh, and probably what I would describe as a family chapel church. Everybody in the church had uh, one of two last names. They were all related. My wife and I were the only ones that were really from out of the community, and so it was a, a radically different Context. Um, My next pastorate. I served as a professor at New Orleans Seminary for eleven years. The last three years, uh, served as a pastor of an inner city church uh, in New Orleans, uh, not too far from the campus. Uh, There And just an incredible experience there. Went from there, uh, left the boring life of a seminary professor uh, to go uh, to be the senior pastor of a large church in Denver, Colorado. So out of the south context into the, the west, a very unchurched area. Um, and just in the, the shadows of uh, Mile High Stadium in, in Denver, and incredible place to live, tough place to do church, uh, but uh, uh, was there for about about eight years. And uh, so those were the four senior pastorates, I then had the privilege of serving as a, a teaching pastor as part of the regular teaching team at the church at Brook Hills uh, in Birmingham, Alabama. The first three years I was on the faculty here, I was living there and coming back and forth. And so I was a mega church context, um, uh, just uh, very gospel-driven. David Platt was the pastor there at the time, uh, and, um, you know, I I guess would be considered obviously more contemporary than, you know, some of the other churches that I had uh, been a part of. So, guys, um, let's start with that first stage of um, uh, stages of church, that first topic of stages of church. One of the common denominators uh, across this whole panel is church planting new churches, and uh, you guys are involved in not not only having been planters but training planters uh, as well uh, if, In your own experience as well as what you 're teaching uh, guys now about preaching in a church planning context, what are some things that are important? to keep in mind when you're preaching in that kind of, of, of context? Tony, we'll start with you.
1: Okay. Uh, so I think it may be helpful to think in three categories, uh, theologically, uh, culturally, and then in terms of leadership. So uh, theologically, I think we're, we need to ask the, uh, like a prior question, which is what is God doing in planting a church? What's, what's, what's this about? And as you read the the biblical narrative, I think what you see is that God has always had a people for himself, uh, a people that he's revealed his glory to and a people that he reveals his glory through. And church planting is tapping into that grand purpose of God. So when you plant a church, you're not just starting a meeting. You are assembling a people. And God has purposed to have a people for himself, a people that culminates in revelation from every tribe and tongue. Now, the, the question then is, how does God bring that people forth? And what you see throughout the scriptures is that God builds his people by his word. He, he builds his church by his word. Uh, so you can, you can build a crowd on a personality or a number of other things, but you can't build a church. You can't build a people. And so preaching is absolutely essential to see this, this great purpose of God uh, come to fruition. Because God has always brought forth his people through the scriptures, through the gospel. And so the first commitment of a church planter then needs to be, I better preach the gospel. And I better preach it week after week after week after week if I want to see Jesus' church built. Because this is the plan for which uh, he will accomplish it. Now, when it comes to like more how-to on preaching uh, in church planting, I think you could think culturally um, in in that what we're, we're trying to do in application is we, we don't make the gospel relevant, but what we do is show the relevance of the gospel. And so to, to show the relevance of the gospel, you need to somehow understand the worldview of the people that you're talking to, uh, their idols, uh, their hopes, dreams, fears, so that you may properly apply the gospel uh, to that people. So if you're doing this in India, that's gonna, you're going to apply it, differently, right? If you apply it to you know, a group in, in Raleigh or uh, in a Muslim country, for example. So what we're trying to do in preaching is to, to show the relevance of the gospel. And to do that, we need to, to do a number of things. Um, in my own experience, it's been things like assuming biblical cluelessness when you preach, um, just an absence of biblical literacy, an absence of even You know where to turn in the bible and so i think what you want to do is always try to speak intelligibly to speak in a way that uh, you're not assuming on people's knowledge um to to assume competing worldviews in the room uh you know d.a carson even says today like the the atheists that we deal with today uh are different they they used to be christian atheists (laughs) they used to deny the christian god Uh, But even the atheism is different. And so uh, there has to be this this understanding that we're we're speaking to a room that doesn't understand the biblical narrative. They have competing worldviews. They have a, a host of idols. And what we're trying to do is to understand them well so that we may show the relevance of the gospel to them. And that's a challenge. And I don't think you can do that if you don't diversify who you interact with regularly as a pastor. Um, to make sure you get out of the Christian subculture and start talking to people at the Little League game or, you know, at the bowling alley or the high schoolers who are smoking e-cigs across the street, you know, um, to to get into the the conversations with people because I think that's going to make you a better applier of of the gospel. Um, Otherwise, if you don't, you tend to preach to the Christian subculture every week. And so I think one of the challenges is for a pastor is to make sure that you're having conversations with with people in the everyday rhythm of life. Uh, And in that regard, all of life is sermon preparation. Uh, But you're not just preparing the sermon at the computer. But all of life is going to feed into how you apply the text because you tend to apply it to the people you talk to every week. Um, And so that's a challenge, I think. Um, And then when it comes to leadership, I would just say, like church planting, it's very important that you're casting vision as well uh, from the pulpit. That's going to be the central place where uh, people are together regularly. And so my suggestion is instead of doing kind of a a once-a-year fire hose uh, vision, to drip the vision every week. Uh, as you preach it uh, so that people always know uh, what you're about, the, the drip method. And so that also comes, I think, in the flow of application. So you could preach through a book of like Romans and be doing this and, and do what I just said as well in applying it to the culture. Uh, your exegesis won't change, and you don't have to give up exposition to do this, which is what a lot of people do, right? Um, they're all into having this point of contact that they lose a point of conflict, which is the gospel. And I think preaching has both, contact and conflict. And if you don't have the conflict, you don't have the gospel. Um, But you also need to know that contact point so that you can show the relevance of the gospel. And so as you're explaining the text, I think what you're trying to do is apply it, but also lead uh, from the pulpit and to do that through a steady dripping uh, week after week so that it it becomes so so much part of the culture of the church that people begin to repeat the vision back to you and they begin to own it themselves. Uh, and so that's a, that's a difficult challenge, uh, and that's just three categories in which I would think about uh, preaching and church planting.
0: Did you say smoking E6? That's an See, E6, that's a yeah. generational thing right here because I'm thinking those are bingo numbers, you know, <laughs> E6, you know. It's like, like uh, I live across from the high school. They okay. E6. Six. Yes, yes. E6. <laughs> Art, compare and contrast some of those things with.
2: I prefer cigars rather than <laughs> e-cigs. e-cigs. With
0: church planting in the northeast, you know what? What or in the west, I've far west? Yeah.
2: To the northeast? You mean the northwest?
0: Northwest. The excuse northwest. me. Yeah. <laughs> I,
2: I think the big thing, friends, is you got to talk a talk that people understand. Uh, I love church history. Um, and when you read about guys like George Whitfield, C.H. Spurgeon, the most recent generation, somebody like Martin Lloyd-Jones, what you discover when you read their sermons and you talk to, in the K, I I go to Wales every year, so I talk to people, I, I know Dr. Lloyd-Jones' family. When you, when, when you study these guys, you discover that they were incredible men of their times. You can't take a Spurgeon sermon and preach it today. If you do, nobody will pay attention to you. They were men of their times. We have got to talk a talk that people understand. Uh, I think Tony hit it right on. We We want to make sure that we're not talking to the elite of the elect on Sunday morning, which means that you need to spend a lot of time with your people. For me, after 35 years, I still do pastoral visitation every Tuesday night. I still take one of our interns, and we go visit the Smiths, and we... You know, sit down, how things go with your family, how can we pray for your children, blah, 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 Pray with them and leave. And I find that informs my preaching wonderfully, more than I, more than I realize. Um, the hardest thing to do is go to a place where you don't know anybody and preach. I, I, all these guys here preach a lot. They probably have the same experience I have. I go to a conference center, 300 new people I've never met before. The first two or three sermons, is just misery for me. And that's why I try and have every meal I can with these people. And by and by, I start caring about them and loving them and listening to what they're talking about. By the end of the week, 12, 13 sermons in, it's like we're really starting to connect with each other. So I I think what will inform your preaching in a church planning situation faster than anything is what Tony said, rubbing shoulders with people. The second thing is... Don't think that you have to prepare any less just because there are 15 people, not 1,500 people. It's just as if it takes John MacArthur 20 hours to get a sermon ready, that's what it's going to take me for 25 people. I have to work just as hard and also realize, I think, that the greatest expression of your leadership in the congregation will take place across the pulpit on Sunday morning. You need to set that tone right from the start. This is where God speaks to us. You want to set that tone right from the start, and those are some things I guess I would keep in mind. Yeah,
0: Dwayne. Uh, in in some church planning context today, you know, we we've had conversations about this. Preaching is not high on priority of the things we're training them to do. You know, I know that's different from your philosophy. When you talk to church planters about preaching, what are some of the things in this category that you're that, that you're wanting them to know and practice?
3: Everything that these guys just shared. But it's true, you can go to a church planning conference or a church planning assessment, and the thing that they don't assess you on is your proclamation ability um, or maybe even your shepherding ability, which in combination, right, is absolutely necessary, which I think we're talking about here. So um, we do need to to make sure I think as Art shared today from the apostolic model, that that proclamation of the word is is central. Um, There's just a lot going on with the church planter and and, and a a lot of books and a a lot of buzz and and a lot of things can tempt his time. Um, I know with the planters that we've had, you know, they get really hung up on what's my first series going to be. And I tell them that doesn't matter because, you know, the group that's there today won't be the group that's there probably a year from now. But what does matter is what these guys are sharing is the methodology. So just, you know, the the saying still remains true. How you attract people and how you minister to people is how you keep people. And if we want for our ministry to be based on or central to the proclamation of the word, then begin there. So I'm much more concerned about a church planner developing the right methodology and the right heart for ministry, then, you know, let me start with Romans and then go to Ephesians or this and that. You'll get there. But begin with the right heart and and the right methodology, and I think you'll be all right.
0: Let's, Let's move on down the stages a little bit. I want to skip over just the, maybe the life stage of an established, healthy church. And let 's go to an issue that thankfully, uh, from one standpoint, is a, you know is a, a, a resurfacing issue, and that 's revitalization i mean i 'm so thankful for the emphasis today on not giving up on some churches that maybe are dying, but seeing how we can go in and, and help and pastors going in to lead that. So many students I hear today really have a burden for that. And, you know, maybe none of us have been a part of maybe a revitalization. Some of the churches we've mentioned probably could be put in that category. But, listen, we're all training pastors. We're rubbing shoulders with pastors, Uh, many times guys who are in that situation. Let's talk about some of the challenges to preaching in a context of revitalization, and I want to add to that a question from uh, Joshua in our audience: uh, What advice would you give uh, to a guy preaching uh, to a congregation that's apathetic? Uh, now, now that that. Question probably is not limited to revitalization, and so we can you know address it from a number of different contexts. But what do you say to pastors, uh, Art? I know you said you didn't have anything to say, but you do because you're you, you know you're 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 preaching to different congregations. You no doubt have some apathetic people in your your place. Uh, uh, but you're training pastors. What do you what do you tell guys? How do you encourage them in those are... uh,
2: <clears throat> I think maybe the strongest contributor to the work of revitalization is you leading as a revitalized man, Mm -hmm. right? Um, The congregation is going to take their cue from you and how you approach public worship, how you approach preaching, all of that kind of thing. I think it needs to begin with you. Secondarily, I think we need to think about a theology of renewal and revival. I have a strong theology of revival. I love to read church history for that reason, and so filling your mind with stories from the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, until Finney corrupts it. Uh, uh, you want to be, you want to be, yes, yes. So remember Hel Nettaton from the Second Great Awakening, but Finney kind of takes it south. I like um, this guy. Uh, you want to you be reading, I think, about renewal. Moreover, I think you want to be preaching about it. So you want to look at something like Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. It's the longest revival we have on the pages of the... We've got eight or nine revivals taking place in the the Old Testament. But there, Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, staggering. You need to preach those things and give people a vision for what happens when the Spirit of God comes in His renewing grace and power. I find that reading about revival stimulates it more than just about anything else. So, again... Leading with that kind of renewed heart yourself. I think the third piece is you've got to be training leaders, new leaders all the time. You've got to be training leaders, new leaders, new leaders, new leaders. That will infect the congregation, um, I think, in a significant way. I, I guess that's what I would say. I
0: really wanted to back up to the second to the last thing you said there, and I'm so appreciative of that. I think a lot of times, just like with church planting, we can over strategize this thing in revitalization and forget that this is a spiritual yeah, thing. That's you know, th- this is a, a supernatural, otherworldly thing. You go in and you think it's all about how you reprogram and fire people up and that type of thing. We need that awakening. And so that that's something that means spending a lot of time on our faces before God, you know, and, and seeking His face and crying out to Him become incredibly important in this.
3: Yeah, I love that. You know, when you're, you're going to any context and you're trying to uh, identify your audience, you're going to have a favorable audience by some, especially in a church planning context. You begin with a small but favorable audience, and that's very, very healthy. In a revitalization, you may have both a favorable and an unfavorable audience, and you really have to keep in mind now that you're speaking to those who may be generally opposed to you just because, like you said earlier, you're coming in to change everything. And you really have to sort of identify the unfavorable audience along with those that may be favorable. I mean, our, actually, our favorite church planning strategy is to go to a dying church that knows it's dying and doesn't want to die because they're actually favorable. They just don't know what to do. Now, you know, a failure would be to go to an apathetic church and, and, and assume that they actually want to change. You know. And so to be honest, when I saw that word apathetic, it, it struck me as maybe let's let's be a little bit honest here. I would rather have someone who's who's, you know, violently opposed to the gospel than apathetic. Because at least they have energy and zeal, at least they're still believing in something. In in my estimation, apathy is the opposite of love. I don't know how you lead that church, to be honest, other than seeking the Lord and asking for, for some help. But, I mean, my general advice, if it's an apathetic church, be very, very careful. If it's a church that's, that's dying and struggling and they, they just don't know what to do, I like that context. I'm not opposed to the apathetic context, but I'm telling you, this is, this is where you may face more spiritual opposition than you realize
0: we have to, again, tying the the, the, the spiritual aspect to it, I, in my estimation, this is one of the places that drives us back to exposition. If the power is in the Word, the life-giving nature is, is the Word, and what we're talking about is people that don't have life or don't want life or, you know, are numb toward life, then there there is something in the proclamation of the Word that we have to have confidence in that revives people, that stirs them up, that renews them, that gives them hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone.
3: It's true, but you're still going to have some, just like Jesus' face, that are never going to get there, and and they're there because, like you said earlier, their family name is somewhere, or they've got a plaque <laughs> somewhere with their name on it, and, and it really is, in some contexts, establishing and growing a church within a church to the point where you just break out of it and you've overcome and that takes a lot of endurance but I'm telling you there there will be a significant amount of spiritual attack in that method
0: guys there 's so much more that we could talk about in in this context, but let me move us on for the sake of time to that second uh, major category and just thinking about when we 're already talking about this the nature of of the audience and certainly apathy you know could be one of those things that characterizes but let 's think more in terms of uh, of of demographic uh, socioeconomic status that type of thing and i, I want to start with uh, multi ethnic congregations preaching to a multi ethnic congregation what are you know what are some of the the challenges that we we face when we're when we're preaching to a multi ethnic congregation again art i'm going to start with you because i think you might have the most diverse of the congregations represented here
2: yeah. i, I it may be true, but I probably have the least to say in the sense of um, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what will resonate with the Russians, the Romanians, the Vietnamese, the African Americans. I just don't spend a lot of time doing that, Jim. I'm, I'm con- And this may be exceedingly naive. I'm convinced that as a pastor, if I truly love these people and I myself am caught up with the gospel. Somehow, I'm going to find a way to connect with them. And I don't know that I'm more intentional than that. Um, so we do have a very, very diverse crowd in terms of ethnicity not so much in terms of age range but certainly in terms of ethnicity and at the end of the day people who do possess the spirit of God will always resonate when you show them the beauty and majesty of Jesus that's the thing I mean regardless of context they will they will respond I'm convinced of that so um, with all due respect I just don't Sometimes I think contextualization is overplayed a little bit. I realize that when we go to the synagogue, we talk to the Jews a different way than we talk to the philosophers on Mars Hill. I understand that. It's different. But, but I, I think in a, in a church context where you're pastoring these people all the time, I think it's a bit overplayed personally.
0: Well, and it can paralyze a pastor, too. I mean, you stop and think about it. If we feel like we've got to become experts, and I'm not limited to this, to ethnic backgrounds, but, you know, different stages of life, you know, single parents, senior adults, students. You know, we've all heard, and I don't I remember if it was Alexander McLaren or, you know, one of the great preachers of the past talked about setting a, a chair in front of his studies and picturing different people. And that sounds great, and there there certainly is benefit, can be benefit, but overthinking and, and beginning to overanalyze can paralyze us sometimes with, and to, to the point that we, we forget the common denominator of the sinfulness of man, the human condition, and that type of thing.
2: I think yeah. the point about making application in preaching, Jim, too, is that um, it's possible to take a particular point and make five different kinds of application related to different kinds of groups. I think you make one good application and people will make the connections in their own mind. We'll, we'll show them how to think about the text in an applicable way, and they'll make their own connections. And they'll feel like you're talking right to them, and frankly,
0: you, you weren't really thinking about them at all, not that intentionally. Sure. You, you two brothers have pretty diverse congreg- uh, congregations in a place like Raleigh-Durham. Uh, lots of uh, folks coming into this area from
1: different backgrounds. What would you add to that conversation, We're growing in diversity. We're we're not there yet. We spent last Sunday actually talking about this very subject. Um, uh, Nothing uh, big time to add to what Art is saying, but just back to my first point, which was spend time with people. I I think in order to to, uh, preach pastorally to a diverse audience, you need diverse friends. You need diverse relationships. Otherwise, it's going to come off very superficial and artificial, and you may sound really strange. You know, if uh, but if I have friends who uh, are teenagers, you know, I spend time with the teenagers and people from different races, different ages. Uh, I think that's going to help my preaching, and so I just can't emphasize enough how important preparation is outside of the study, just life on life with people. It's just going to make you a more genuine uh, preacher uh, as you, as you uh, work through the text.
3: And, and I would just say that I love this discussion because I think in Ephesians 2, the mystery of the gospel is a multi-ethnic church. I think that's the mystery, that in the Old Testament, even the prophets couldn't figure out how are we going to get along with Gentiles? Because they knew enough to know that Abraham was supposed to be the father of Gentiles as well as the father of the Jews. And now Paul says, every time the church at Ephesus gathers, we're the answer to the mystery that had been locked up for thousands of years. And so in our churches, every time we gather in a multi-ethnic, multicultural context, we become the answer or Christ's sermon to the world. It's a very, man, it's just such a gospel thing to have brothers and sisters from those different backgrounds so i want to i want to say that you know it should be the expectation to be multi-ethnic multicultural and we just got to do everything we can taking this advice to be that let's uh,
0: just bring uh the the race conversation into this just for a second and and let me ask the question this way how do you you brothers as pastors um, when When there is a particular group of people uh, an ethnic uh, uh, group in your congregation that that maybe is experiencing suffering, being oppressed, having prejudice leveled at them how do you how do you guys incorporate that into your preaching? How do you use the preaching event to speak to those kinds of journey do you do you just not be concerned about it and let the gospel as you're proclaiming it do that? Or, or do you do some things
1: to really try to, uh, to, to speak truth into the situations? Yeah, I think it's very important, first of all, that the people understand if you're going to address that, that that's part of your broader philosophy of ministry. So if you have a philosophy of justice ministry but you never speak on race, then there's an inconsistency. If you're pro-life but you don't care for an orphan, that's inconsistency. And to truly be a Mago day means to care for everybody from womb to tomb uh, in every from the refugee to the widow to the elderly to those dying like we 're to be a peep, so they have to see if you 're going to address something it 's consistent um, and then practically what what we' have done and we 've been very fortunate you know, we 've got some of these guys in the room here, Cortland and Deuce and uh, walter we, we have We have discussions you know um, prior to Sunday. <coughs> And we'll bring our interns in on that at times, and just let and just listen. And I, I think that is that's been the most helpful thing for me to learn uh, through these these latest uh, you know shootings in in the states is just learning how to listen. Uh, that listening is an act of love, and to uh, not make assumptions about people, uh, to to be a learner. Um, And so those discussions have been really helpful uh, to show me blind spots, to to show me areas uh, where I haven't thought carefully about discipleship, for example. Um, And so um, I just think it's important, again, that the pastor not isolate himself but have conversations outside of the pulpit. And on this one, we've been really blessed by having uh, brothers who aren't – they're not not angry. Well, they may be angry at the issue, but they're not – they're faithful members of our congregation, so they're trustworthy. There, there's no agenda its it's really we want to grow as a church, we want to be consistent with our mission and so i've been incredibly blessed by having guys like that so if if a pastor has access to uh, those who are you know could help them in this regard, I would say, man, have these discussions. Uh, and you have to have discussions. You can't do it on Twitter. You can't do it on Facebook. You can't nuance a conversation Jesus. on Twitter, and, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it produces nothing. Like, all you do is alienate the other side when you're making these statements, and so yeah. I just think it's crucial that, again, that we build, we have relationships, and it's, it's through relationships that we learn how to love, and we learn how to apply the text, pray, you know, Corporate prayers as a pastor over these issues—that should flow out of our relationships. Our application flows out of our relationships. Our leadership flows out of that. So it's it's important uh, that that we learn how to engage, listen, and, and and love in this way. I think.
0: How how important is it, um, it in a church that is trying to really wants to be the church that looks like heaven, be a multi-ethnic church? How important in the preaching event is or is it to have uh, preachers on our teaching teams that represent the various ethnic groups? Is that an issue?
1: So what we say is that we want to avoid tokenism, which is putting somebody up for their nationality. Um, but if somebody is gifted, then we want them to to lead. So if the as we all say with Deuce, that brother can preach. I don't care what color he is, right? It's like it's not a color thing. It's he can flat preach. Um, but it does certainly help to have diversity, to have representation. Uh, Walter talked just uh, Sunday about when they brought in new kids to their congregation, little kids. Or not their congregation, their, chair, their home. Um, that they, they accommodated to a certain level. They put a little toothbrush here and they got the little chair for the little one. And, and that the house wasn't broken. It, there just needed to be a spirit of welcome, a spirit of uh, we're, we're considerate of, of, of who's coming. Um, nothing changes in the kind of philosophy of the house or anything like that, but there is a, uh, and so what we're, we're using this kind of uh, analogy now, we just want to try to put out toothbrushes, you know, uh, again, not as a tokenism, but as a sign of love, like uh, be mindful of that diversity that you have and ask yourself the question, this may be the wheelchair ramp for the handicapped person that keeps coming, you know, it could be a number of things that we're, I think we're trying to always do. And that is just basic hospitality. When you think about it, uh, this is, this is not being seeker friendly. This is not tokenism. This is, we want to love people well. And so when I have people over to my house, I want to ensure that they're protected. They're cared for. There are little things that I do that says, I really care about you. Uh, and so churches have a lot of room to grow in these areas. I know our church does. And hopefully we are growing in them.
0: Art, you may in in the Northeast, in a place like Portland, you've been involved in a number of what did I say Northwest. <laughs> I'm going to get you in the right geographic area. <laughs> Sorry, um, you may be preaching to a larger ratio of unbelievers uh, in in your congregation. How do you how do you process that in your preparation as well as your delivery and Knowing that you're preaching to yes, some people that are regenerate and uh, and you know believers and they have the Spirit of God, but then also others who are not. That's Jim's hit on something that's probably a
2: big difference between your experience here. I think this is my fifth time to the south, and it seems to me that from faithful brothers, I hear the same thing over and over again. We deal with nominalism, nominalism. No, we got a church of a thousand people maybe a third of the people are not even converted, and that's part of the challenge they have to deal with. In the Pacific Northwest, we don't deal with nominalism hardly at all. We deal with flat-out paganism. Uh, It's not that people are indifferent to the gospel. People are hostile to the gospel. The Northwest is really probably the most liberal region of the country, so it is aggressively anti-Christian there. Um, So we don't have large crowds of unbelievers coming but but practically speaking, Jim, two, two things. I think when a person is really truly and Mm. intentionally and carefully Christocentric, is always going to be things for unbelievers in the sermon and at the same time feed believers. At the end of the day, if I go to a church service and I don't hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I feel ripped off. I don't think it's been a Christian worship service. If I have not heard the death, burial, and resurrection at some point in the sermon and the worship and all of those things... Um, so I think when that's your perspective, if you plan worship services and preaching that way, if you really truly see Christ as the focal point for all of biblical revelation, you're always going to be talking evangelistically. I think the second thing to keep in mind is I always at some point in the sermon want to remember to address unbelievers directly, to call them by name and, and, and to appeal to them directly directly all the time, which is why the idea of doing 15 sermons on eldership with Dealing with Equality each week, okay, here's what it means to be above reproach, all right, come back next week, I, I think that is positively disastrous for the health of a church. You can preach those things and still be Christ-centered, but the way most guys do aren't. So I think... Finney,
0: Finney probably did that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but...
2: I, but I think being Christocentric intentionally in your preaching, and by Christocentric, you understand, friends, I don't mean at the end of the sermon I throw in a little four spiritual laws. at the end. That's not what it is to be Christocentric, okay? Maybe that's another discussion for another time. But I think when you are Christocentric and the worship service, our, our thought of a worship service is it is to be a representation of the gospel every week in everything we do. So in our worship service on Sunday morning, the gospel is coming at you directly, intentionally, in about five different ways including the Lord's Supper, which we partake every week. There's an opportunity to talk to the gospel. We talk to unbelievers right at the Lord's Supper. We fence the table. We explain to them what this is. We want you, don't, don't take in these elements, take in Christ, you know. So uh, I think when you're doing that kind of thing, um, there's not so much a disconnect between believers and unbelievers. I know that this Christocentric service and this Christocentric sermon is gonna is gonna motivate the heart of the believer, and it's also gonna be the thing that the unbeliever needs. Yeah,
0: uh, your message in chapel just speaks about the gospel being not just for unbelievers, but being for believers. You know, when we're preaching the gospel. And that's driving everything we're doing. This is this is going to happen. I do, and I appreciate you, you talking about at some point in the service addressing unbelievers. It just made me think of the importance for clarity, I think. Uh, you know, there are some truths that you're going to run across that don't apply to both of those groups. And and I think it's important instead of us just blowing through that, assuming it's applying to everybody, is to. Say sometimes now I want to talk to those of you for a moment who know Christ and have Christ, and at other points to say, now, some of you are on a spiritual journey you 've not trusted Christ yet, you 're overhearing this, and, and, and let me say a word to you a minute to, to make distinctions like that, I think can be important when we 're dealing with different truths that may just just apply to one group or the other
3: yeah i mean i 've been really trying to find the freedom. To invite people to receive Christ anywhere in my sermon, you know, I grew up where that was only at the end. Every head, battery, eye closed, and that's that's when it happened. We peek around to see who wasn't saved if they raised their hand, and then we'd like, oh, he raised his hand last week too. Uh, <laughs> but now I I just really feel the freedom that at any point in time where I'm prompted through the text by the Spirit, this is the time. It could be in the intro. It could be a third of the way through, ter- two thirds now. That's all I'm doing. I feel this is the time to address the unbelievers, and it fits as opposed to trying to force it. I don't know. where you, Are you guys doing the same thing?
1: Yeah. So I, I try to do it at the in, in the introduction. Practically every week, I'll say, hey, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a great week for you to be here. And it's always a great week for them to be there. But I'll make up some reason why it's a great week for them to be there. Yeah. And uh, I probably stole that from you, Art. Uh, Most everything I've learned about preaching from these two guys, and then Dwayne's taught us how to pastor at Mago Day. So... um, But, yeah, I think it's important that you try to get everybody on the bus from the beginning. Otherwise, people assume, the outsider assumes this is, again, for the insiders. And there's a a tendency, I think, for them to kind of check out. But you want to say to them, we want you to study this with us. And I think the other, uh, you know problem that that preachers have had uh, in in re- kind of recent history is an assumption that unbelievers can't pay attention that they they can't follow along in the bible which is just crazy you know that we have to do something other than teach the bible for the unbeliever and i'm like man they come expecting that actually Like, if if you walk into Starbucks and they give you a cheeseburger, you're like, dude, I came for coffee. Like, I think they're expecting to hear the Bible. And I think they just get confused when we don't do the Bible. So we're like, we're a church. We do Bible, okay? But what we want to do is speak intelligibly to them and to invite them in. And if you're going to um, do any apologetics in the course of your sermon these little sidebars, make sure you represent those views, the best version of those views, and don't build straw men to attack them. Otherwise, they won't come back. But if you can address them respectfully and let the gospel be the one thing that offends them, you know, rather than you and rather and and not your own uh, misrepresentation of their views. I think that's very important because most will not become believers. That's been our experience at Amagaday that first Sunday. But what happens is over a period of time, if they sense, well, this guy is aware of my objections. He's aware of my discussions. These people seem to love me. He actually knows the view of Bart Ehrman or whoever it might be. Um, I, want, I want to learn more. I think it's very important. It, it may take eight weeks for the penny to drop for that person to, to, to get it. Uh, the other thing I, th- I think you do when you build in that culture of expectation of unbelievers is you encourage people to invite their friends. I think when you say to them every week, hey, if you're not a Christian, or if you have these little sidebars at some point, and you say, and it's not hard to do, by the way, whatever you're talking about, they don't like. So if it's on wrath, you just flip it on them. You know, If you're here and you're not a Christian, you probably hate this concept. And you just talk to them. And I don't think you have to be the most winsome apologist. You're just helping them to know you're aware that they don't like it (laughs) they respect that and you probably won't convince them on the spot anyway if you had a great argument but you're just flipping it and you're you're inviting that kind of dialogue and conversation and I think the people in the pew sit there and they think man I should have invited John this week I should have invited my uncle this week and uh, and if the people know at some point Tony will address my unbelieving friend I think what you'll eventually have are unbelievers in your church week in and week out And we we have seen that, and that's all because of the faithfulness of our people to invite. We regularly get people from NC State that come and say, we've never been to a Christian worship service. It's our first Christian worship service. I got a friend who's ministering to Muslims, and he says the the imam at this mosque is coming in a few weeks. Um, So we have built in an expectation And I don't think this means you have to abandon exposition. I don't think this is more than 10% of your sermon, even, that kind of explicitness to unbeliever. But I do want to be explicit and address them and not just say if you're a guest or you're a visitor, but rather if you're not a Christian, you know, you may be thinking this. I want you to see this. Um, And then, as Art said, we do the same thing with uh, weekly communion, uh, speaking directly to the unbeliever. Uh, We would love for you to take the table. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to become a Christian. So, in the beginning, in the worship service, in uh, in the course of the sermon, and then at the end, we just want to address them all throughout with gospel, gospel, gospel.
0: Strong.
2: I think I heard the. I think I saw the phrase in Tony's book. I'd never met Tony before, and I knew he was a kindred spirit. When, it, and I may not get it exactly right, Tony, but it was we, we need to be expositional evangelists or expository evangelist. I thought, that's exactly it. It's not either or, it's both and always.
0: Guys, I want to move us on, just a great discussion. We've got about four or five minutes left, and I want us to get to that third subject of just some philosophical things that different pastors have, and maybe this is a bridge. Barry, in our audience, asks a question, and this really relates to the nature of the audience. We preach to a lot of, go into a lot of churches, guys, pastor churches where they followed a guy that was just did purely topical sermons. So you have an audience that is trained in hearing topical sermons. Short answers here. I'd like to go around and hear from each of you. What's the best way to introduce expositional preaching in a church like that that has been exclusively exposed to topical preaching? Dwayne?
3: Start with Philemon. <laughs> okay.
0: You're talking about take a short book. Is that what you're saying?
3: Not Romans, not, not Romans. Matthew. Okay.
0: All right. But is that the principle you're talking about? You know, do a shorter expositional series? Yeah. Okay.
2: All right. Uh, I, I would say lead the congregation through a season of repentance. <laughs> Walter Kaiser says you can preach one topical sermon a year as long as you repent immediately thereafter. <laughs> Here's the exciting thing. Somebody who listens to really, really good topical preaching, and there's a place for topical preaching. And some people are really good at it. But people figure, I could never do that with my Bible. I could never come. Holy Toledo, how did he come up with that? I could never do that. What you want to do is, by virtue of doing faithful exposition, you want him to see, "I, I saw where he got that. I can do that. You can teach people to read their Bibles. So I think beginning by letting them know, I want my preaching to help you become a better Bible reader for yourself. Um, I think those kinds of things, I think, can pave the way for that. If you do exposition well, I don't think there's going to be a lot of fuss, frankly. What what happens is, is the guys come into a church where they've been 20-minute topical sermons. They say, okay, hang on, guys, because we're going to have 15 minutes of boring exposition. The problem isn't exposition. The problem is the boring, right? So so um, it may be that what you need to do is say, we're going to do 25 minutes of exposition, and I'm going to win you over to this, and maybe in a year or two we'll bump that to 30 or 35 or whatever, but don't try and out MacArthur MacArthur the first week you're there. <laughs>
1: I would just add to that. In the interview phase, I would be brutally honest with that search committee or whoever it is that's in charge of bringing the pastor on, just so they understand um, uh, what they're about to get. And then out out of the pulpit, I think it's important to also do some things like, well, I I had to do this. I mean, I followed a guy who was a great pastor, but he preached 20-minute sermons. And um, I'm I'm coming in at 40, 45, and we're going to go through books of the Bible. Is I put new pew Bibles out, you know. you, uh, you do kind of the newsletter or whatever communication device, including people in your weekly study somehow, so that uh, they just understand this is what you're about. Uh, we had a phrase in Mississippi that we want worn-out Bibles and worn-out passports. And I said that all the time, you know, that they, they knew this is, this was what we wanted to be about was, was the word and, and mission. Uh, so however you can couch your philosophy and keep teaching your philosophy of preaching regularly, again, dripping it, you know, beg, he, he, he does this so well in like the intro sometimes say, hey, I'm not bringing the, the Bible to you on roller skates, you know, in a clever way. I'm just kind of delivering it to you. That's what we do. It, it's just something quick. But it keeps reinforcing why you 're doing what you 're doing, you know I think that 's important, not just doing it, but explaining why you 're doing it
0: I, I really appreciate you saying that I think what, and I thought about this actually early when we first started with church planting. I think this is important I, I think we need to teach our people about preaching now, now we don 't need to abdicate our Preaching time to do that unless we're preaching from a passage on preaching, kinda like you did, you know, in chapel today. That's a good rich text on preaching. But maybe take some commercials, some advertisements at the beginning or the end, say, here's here's what we're doing and here's why we're doing it, and keep reminding people about that. Well
3: what we're trying to do is teach our people to be expositional listeners and there's some good resources on how to be an expositional listener to hear an expositional message. So I think there can be some training.
0: Well, guys, we began to, we started touching on, you know, a little, a few of the things, uh, on, on philosophy there, but we're, we're out of time. And so we're going to have to shut this down to be respectful of schedules and times. Uh, you guys have been incredible. Um, Guys and gals, thank you so much for carving out time to come and be a part of this Facebook Live audience. Uh, what a blessing, you know, to have you involved in this. And I want to say thank you to guys. Will you join me in thanking these brothers right here? For the